0: spirit of prayer. After I untangle myself. Lord God, send upon us your life-giving spirit so that your image may be reborn in us, renewed in us, and we may rise in your power in the image of your Son. In his name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. I grew up in a home where there were mixed messages about love. I might not be alone in that. My mother taught me at least two versions of love. One, love turns you into a stump. The second one, she also taught me, was love causes you to take a stand. Now the, the stump lesson came through a children's book she used to like to read to us called The Giving Tree. Now in that story there is a boy and there is a tree and the tree is a she. The she-ness is important here. Because as the story goes, the little boy loved the tree, the tree loved the little boy, and they delighted in each other and played and frolicked. And slowly, the boy took things from the tree, and she gave them out of her delight. She wanted the apples, he got the apples. He wanted the leaves, he got the leaves. He wanted the branches, he got the branches. He wanted her trunk, he got her trunk, until she was a stump. Love, evidently, means giving your whole life away until you're a stump. My mom stopped reading us that story as her feminism grew. (laughs) And as she made progress in Al-Anon. My sisters and I like to joke that she was of the fundamentalist branch of Al-Anon, Boy, could she detach with love. <laughs> it's a problematic story. I'm not the only one to say this. This notion that love is so sacrificial that you make yourself disappear. She taught me to take a stand lesson about love at church. During the late 70s, during liturgical reform and prayer book reform, my mom was the first person at Christ Church, New Brunswick, New Jersey, to stand up after the Sanctus. Remember back in the day, after the Sanctus was sung, everybody hit their knees. My mom called this mowing them down. There I was as a small child in our colonial box pew, and there was mom standing, the only one. And I wanted to hide, in a weird mix of embarrassment and pride. Then communion came. We gathered around the altar rail, and she was still standing, the only one to stand to receive communion. It caught on eventually. But what she was teaching me with courage and grace and a deep faith was that our human dignity has been restored and recognized by God. So that in God's presence, we can stand in our dignity. We, must, we don't need to kneel. God has restored us and recognized us as God's image here on earth. And so she stood with dignity. And I learned that to love is to stand up. Now, if you're one of the people who has been sticking with Jesus' Sermon on the Plain in Luke. Are you still listening? That's how our passage begins today. Are you still listening? This is challenging stuff, these beatitudes and woes and challenging instruction for those of us who would be disciples. And you might wonder with this lesson about loving enemies and praying for those who abuse you. Whether Jesus is calling us to be a stump for the sake of love, or to take a stand for the sake of love. For me, it is the second, and by now you know me, I will explain why. But for fidelity to the text and pastoral reasons, I believe we are called by Jesus to stand as we love our enemies. Remember that Jesus is preaching to his disciples. He has done the Beatitudes and the Woes. He has told us very clearly that if we follow him, we can expect to be reviled. And he said also, Woe to those who are admired. Right before the current passage, Jesus says, Woe to you when all speak well of you. For so our ancestors did to the false prophets. Jesus is telling us if we choose to be disciples, we are called to be truth-telling prophets. And as truth-telling prophets, we should expect to have mixed reviews, if not full-out enemies. So this teaching about enemies This teaching about love your enemies comes from the fact that we're going to have some. And then what do you do? And Jesus is really clear. He says it twice in this passage. Love your enemies. Now, if you thought the Trinity was hard, or the incarnation, or the resurrection, I think love your enemies is right up there among the Christian challenges. And Jesus knew we would struggle. He knew his people would struggle, so he teaches them a new thing. Now, you might know the German philosopher Hannah Arendt for her banality of evil, The Trial of Eichmann. She also has a book called The Roots of Totalitarianism, where she points out that it's very easy to form community when you identify an enemy. If you have an enemy to react against, you can create internal cohesion and identity against that enemy. And she, of course, is talking about Germany in the 30s and the 40s. Jesus is not going to give his disciples that option. They cannot be a community that gains its identity by having enemies. They will have enemies but they cannot get a cheap internal sense of fellowship by having those enemies. Because they must love those enemies. Now we might think, oh, we are Episcopalians, we don't do that. We like to to say other people do that. But we do it all the time. Every time one of our members says, oh, those evangelicals, oh, those fundamentalists, oh, those blah, blah, blahs, we're doing it. We're defining ourselves against somebody else. Jesus doesn't let us do that. We are to love our enemies, which simply means that our identity is in that love, not in the opposition. Our identity is in the love, not in the opposition. And because of our life in God, we have in Christ. We have the spiritual freedom granted to us, the spiritual freedom granted to us to exchange good for ill, to regard the good of the other, which is to love them. Jesus then gives some amazingly striking, literally, examples. And these are tough love examples. And they come from knowing our human dignity is from God, restored and recognized and delighted in by God. How do we love the enemy? He gives some examples. The slap example, the strip example, in Matthew, the extra mile example, and back in Luke, the lending example. And what I want to say, coming out of wonderful theology done by Walter Wink, in the context of South Africa during apartheid, there is a very different reading of these examples. These examples have too often been used to rationalize abuse, to justify oppression, to create a passivity among Christians in the face of the intolerable. Wink, found in South Africa a different reading. So for example, the slap. In the ancient world, a backhanded slap is a slap of disrespect. A superior slaps an inferior this way. To turn your cheek is an act of resistance, forcing that person to slap you this way, like an eagle. resistance from knowing your dignity and insisting on their dignity. You are regarding their good by holding them accountable and asking them to recognize what's real and true. You are equals. Stripping, same thing. In the ancient world, it was legal to take your cloak. That was a legal way to Get a debt repaid. And this whole little bit hinges on how many pieces of clothing a person had in the ancient world. Any guesses? How many pieces of clothing? A cloak and a shirt and what else? Nope, two. You had two pieces of clothing, so if you took the cloak and then took the shirt, you were naked. This nakedness was another form of resistance. If you are gonna treat me as less than human, I'm gonna call you on it by embarrassing you in this public space by getting naked and showing up your exploitation of me. Once again, resistance, nonviolent resistance, claiming integrity, claiming dignity on an equal basis. Same with the extra mile in Matthew. A Roman soldier could impress you into service for one mile? Well, if you take on two, that's you asserting your agency. That's you asserting your identity based in the generosity of God. That's you asserting your dignity, which your oppressor wants nothing to do with. And on and on and on, you see where I'm going. If you read these examples the wrong way we teach submission to oppression. If we read them the way I think Jesus was teaching them, we learn transformational resistance. Transformational resistance that recognizes the necessity of dignity in all parties. Jesus is promoting the agency and spiritual freedom of his followers Your identity is not as a victim. Your identity is not conferred on you by the would-be enemy. Your identity and agencies come from you, from your life in Christ, and your life from the Christian community. Remember, you are a child of God. That little bit in this passage gets missed, doesn't it? Remember, you are a child of God. All things stem from that identity. So why is this so crucial? Why am I so wound up about this? Well, I am the son of a fundamentalist Al-Anon member. And it got off on me, I know. I was raised on feminism all the way, and I'm proud of that. I am passionate about this because these stories are used to teach an unhealthy form of love. A sick form of love that gives away way too much and asks us to deface our dignity, destroy our health, ruin our self regard to adapt to a dominating power. To adapt to a dominating power, however that comes. Pastorally, I've seen too much of this, and I will not be a false prophet about it. I will be a truth-telling prophet about it. In my ministry with women, in so many cases, I see women who've been taught to sacrifice everything, just like that giving tree, to disregard themselves to the point of self-destruction, giving up their safety, giving up their physical health, giving up the regard that is their right for the sake of abusers, narcissists, hateful, neglectful people, cautioned too often by pastors who say, oh, just put up with it and love your enemy. After the eight o'clock service, one person reminded me about his grandmother who was married to an abusive alcoholic And she went to her priest here in Philadelphia, and the priest said, oh, just go home and be meek and mild. Because that's how Christians are, aren't we? Well, he said, the good news is she divorced him. (laughs) And she still went to communion. (laughs) She took a stand for love. And I am passionate, I admit, I say no to that teaching that turns people into doormats for the sake of Christ. I say yes to standing up in love for the dignity God has so restored in us. Because love, real love, is between people who respect and recognize the full dignity of the people engaged in that love love recognizes and respects the dignity of all involved love elevates the disregarded and it brings down the overly regarded the haughty there is no place for domination in love love resists mistreatment it resists mistreatment So to reestablish and repair right relationship in the joy of God-given love, which includes all parties in God's dignity. Love your enemies is not a request for warm, sentimental, gushy feelings towards our oppressors, tormentors, and violators. Love is simply the desire for the good for each person who would be our enemy. For our own safety and sanity and well-being, we can love in a detached way. We can love from a distance. We can wish a person well in an open-parted way open-hearted way while keeping our love, our limits and boundaries intact. This is the way of dignity and integrity. We can release a person from our life in love, handing them over to God for God's care, where we no longer can do it. In short, I guess I'd sum up my sermon as I sum up advice to many people I work with pastorally, don't be a stump. Stand up for love. God's love. God's love. The love that God gave everything for to restore our dignity. God gave everything in God's commitment to restoring God's good creation in us and renewing us in our image our risen image of Christ so my friends let us be faithful to what God has done for us without trying to repeat God's work letting God be God and letting ourselves be the humans that God made us to be in our dignity, our limits, and our grace. Amen. Amen.